One of the questions we often ask in our um, new members class is, uh, can you think of any word pictures that occur in the Bible about what a church is supposed to be like? And um, I mean, often some of the answers are a bride or a building um, or something like that. And those are great answers. So if you give those answers, that's great. Um, But an answer that was given one time that I really liked is that a church is supposed to be like a hospital uh, for broken people. And that really is true. We're supposed to be, a church is supposed to be a place where no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what's going on in your life physically or spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, that this should be a place where you can come in and be honest with other people about what's going on in your life. We're supposed to be like a hospital for broken people. Uh, But just a reality check here, how many of you have ever been in a conversation with someone and they started to vulnerably, honestly tell you what they were really struggling with and you really wanted to back your chair up or um, maybe... Maybe you really didn't want to move toward them. Uh, Maybe even if you're honest, you were a little bit repulsed by what they were sharing with you. Um, I have been. I mean, I'm a pastor. And so um, I think that just shows us how we're not quite like Jesus yet. You know, you can't really find an example in the scriptures of anyone sharing with Jesus what's really going on with them in their life. Of course, Jesus already knew, so he didn't have the surprise factor going on, but still, The fact is that when people shared with Jesus what was really going on, Jesus is always attracted to brokenness and weakness. He is never repulsed by it. And I find that incredible about Jesus. It's an incredible fact. It's it's incredible for you and for me that we can be honest with God about what is really going on. It's also really challenging for God's church Because if we're honest, we're really not like Jesus in a lot of ways. We can have our limits as to how far we feel like we can go to love people. There may be certain sins that people share with you that you feel like, okay, I can move toward you. But you may have something, you may have some area, some sin that really for you makes you want to pull back. You know, one of the most productive and um, I think insightful uh, assignments I had in seminary is that I was uh, told in a class that I needed to attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I couldn't tell the, the other folks there that this was an assignment. Like, I just had to go and try to fit in, and I couldn't tell them anything about why I was there, and I just had to observe how people acted, how they engaged, how they loved each other. And so as I walked in, um, I was greeted at the door by someone who was really friendly and said, and they got to know me, and they're like, do you mind if I sit with you uh, tonight? And I was like, no, that'd be, be great. I did feel extremely uncomfortable. So I was like, that's great. And then they handed me uh, some information about what was going to be going on that night. And I was like, okay, that's really helpful because I have no idea what's going to be happening here. And so then I sat down and kept going. And, you know, famously AA meetings begin with everyone going on the ro- around the room and saying, hey, I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm Kay, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. And so it got to me, and I said, hey, Corey. Uh, hey, I'm Corey. Um, it's nice to meet you tonight. And everybody looked at me and kind of smiled because they all believed I was in denial, and I just wasn't ready to admit uh, why I was there. Um, and so, it, you know, no one made me feel bad about obviously being in denial from their perspective. Um, they just 
sat with me, and I found uh, it to be a place uh, that was much like what I would hope a hospital would be like. I mean, frankly speaking, where you can be there, and everyone, there was no pretense. No one felt like, because they were on step eight and you were on step two, everybody's still an alcoholic. Everybody's still in the same boat. Everybody's still broken and in need and still looking for and hoping for uh, change and redemption. And I found it to be very encouraging. I mean, imagine if you went to a hospital and you, or, or you went to the doctor's office and you vulnerably told the doctor what was really going on with you and they didn't want to treat you because they found it to be gross. I mean, it's, it, would be hor- it would be a horrible experience. Actually, they, I don't think they can do that by their oath, but I suppose that they could. Um, but often that's what churches can be like, and that's what Jesus is getting at here with these Pharisees. The Pharisees at the time, this is the ruler of the Pharisees, this is the supposed church, this is the people of God that, that Jesus came for. He came for his brothers and sisters in Israel first and then for the rest of the world. And what Jesus finds among the people, among the people who are supposed to be his church, is repulsive to Jesus. It actually is. But, but what Jesus does in the midst of this is amazingly, Jesus sits down with people who feel like they have no need for him. They feel like they have no need for Jesus. They feel like they're doing Jesus a favor by inviting Jesus to their dinner. And incredibly, Jesus still moves toward people who have no knowledge that they even need him. If that weren't the case, then none of us would be here. At some point, every single one of you, and maybe you're there today, you actually think you're doing God a favor by being here today. You actually think you're doing God a favor by giving him time and giving him some, some of your money, but Jesus still moves toward you. He actually loves you and cares for you and wants you to know about his mercy. So today we're talking about the kingdom of God and mercy. So there's four points, and at every point today we're going to be asking the question, who gets to experience fellowship with God? Who gets to experience fellowship with God at the end of this section? The first section is Jesus heals the broken. He heals the broken. That's verses 1 through 6. So he goes to eat in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Even though they're preoccupied, they don't have much time, uh, Jesus, Jesus goes in and meets with them, even though they think they're doing him a favor. But in verse 2, we learn that there, in front of Jesus was a man that was suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy is not a word that I use very often. So according to WebMD, it is edema due to congestive heart failure, which is a pooling of fluid or blood in the lower limbs, which causes one not to be able to walk. And so there's this person here uh, in the fellowship who is suffering from this. Maybe he was a fellow Pharisee. It's possible that this was an aging family member of the ruler of the Pharisees in whose home Jesus is dining. Uh, Some people have speculated that. It could have been a servant that that really... uh, that the, the ruler of the Pharisees really cared for a lot. But at any rate, this is a person created in God's image that's important enough to the one who is hosting to be there, and yet this person cannot walk. And so the key question Jesus asks in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the, holy, the holiest of days of the week? And there's a, there's a hesitance to answer the question. And so um, the hesitance could be a flat-out no, or it could be a, oh, hmm, 
we haven't thought of that in a couple hundred years. That's a great question. We're not sure how to answer that question, and that's extremely sad. So Jesus is making a habit of healing people on the Sabbath. This is not the first person he's healed on the Sabbath. He's making a habit of doing it to force an issue. And in verse 5, he points out their lack of logic lack of logic. Of course, if they were to have an ox or an animal fall into a ditch, they would remove the animal from the ditch on the Sabbath, and yet, but he's healing a man, creating God's image, a man that they care much about, and they have a problem with it. What is Jesus trying to teach them? He's teaching them that the Sabbath, or for us today, Sunday, or days that we worship together, it it really is every day, but particularly On the Sabbath, on a day of worship, there is no better day to heal somebody than on that day. Because where God is worshipped, God is present. And where God is present, God is a God of healing. Where you find God being worshipped, you should also find broken people being healed. And so since day one, when our church opened the doors in 2010, we've said we want to be a church where every Sunday we want to make sure that Jesus is lifted high and exalted, and he is the focus of our worship service, but we also want to work equally as hard to making sure our doors are wide open to anyone who feels their need to come in and see Jesus. We're not going to discriminate against anyone based on their sin, based on their race, based on their gender, based on whatever they are. We want anyone to come in and have an opportunity to be healed in the presence of God. And I'm telling you that churches... If you don't focus on that and work at it, we will become like this little Pharisee gathering that we find here in Luke 14. We'll we'll just find that we're just gathering our besties around us, you know, our little best friends, our clique, and that makes us feel comfortable. But that's not what church is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a place where everyone can come in and experience Jesus Christ. He heals us spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, and relationally. In fact, I want to double down on psychologically here, as so many people right now are struggling with their mental health. It, can, it could be something, whatever you're struggling with, there's so many different ways that people can struggle psychologically. It could make you feel like that you don't have a place, that no one can understand you. And I just want to make sure that you know, if that's something that you're struggling with right now, that we're glad you're here, and we hope that you experience the grace of Jesus Christ. So who gets to experience fellowship with God in this section? It's the broken man or woman who knows they need healing. So the second section here is Jesus exalts the humble. That's verses 7 through 11. So Jesus shows up at a dinner party here hosted by the Pharisee, and he notices that everyone, as would be in that culture, is trying to position themselves for the greatest places of honor. The way this works is, the most prominent person gets to sit in, this, in the place where when someone walks in the room that they notice you first, and then the next most prominent seats are near the most prominent person. And so everybody's jockeying for position, trying to sit close to the most prominent guy who's the host of this meal, presumably in this case. And so this is what is happening here. And so Jesus gives them more than instructions in good manners. And he's trying to help them understand who's actually prominent and who's actually important in the kingdom of God. Who sits in the most prominent place? I mean, Jesus presumably is probably in one of the worst places at the table. A, because he doesn't care. Uh, He knows he's the most important person there. 
But they have Jesus Christ at the table with them. They have no idea. The most prominent person in the room is Jesus, and he's always the most prominent person in the room. Wherever he's in the room, uh, he is the most prominent person. And so how do you get to sit near God? How do you get to sit near Jesus? Well, the presumption would be it would be by doing a bunch of like really great religious things or, or being wealthy or highly successful, and then Jesus might be like, oh, okay, I'll invite you to be a little bit closer to me. But Jesus blows their minds and says, that's not it at all. It doesn't, to me, it, it doesn't matter how many times you've cursed recently or how many times you've attended church this summer when other people have been on vacation or how much you've given in the midst of a potential recession or inflation going That is not it. That is not it for him at all. Jesus is saying, the way that you get to sit near me is humility. It's humility. Humility matters a lot to God. In fact, the people that that Jesus has the hardest time with in the Gospels and that God has the hardest time with throughout the Scriptures, it's people who feel like that they don't really need him, that they're okay on their own. And so Jesus is telling them that humility is really where it's at. He's telling them that if it's the people who feel their need for God, and we'll even get into this more a little bit later on in the last section, people who feel their need for God, their desperate need for God, are the ones that Jesus loves to invite to his table to know him. People that feel like they're fine on their own, that generally they can make it in 99% of situations, but there's that 1% where they kind of need a little bit of help from God. Those are the people that Jesus challenges to, to reconsider their position. So humility, again, as we said at the beginning of this series, it's the poor in spirit that enter the kingdom of God. It's the very first beatitude. It's the poor in spirit. And so if you feel your need for God, if you feel dependent on God for grace, That's what it takes to become a Christian. But to grow as a Christian, to continue growing as a Christian, you also need humility. Humility is not a flash-in-the-pan moment you experience at camp or when you're really in a bad way. It's something that is endemic to the Christian life. Humility is like the soil of the tree of growth in the Christian life. So how do we grow in humility? Uh, Well, first of all, you could pray for humility. Now, I've it's, it's been joked around before, and it feel, praying for humility feels like praying for something uh, really bad, like, like praying that you'll lose all your money or that you'll get a disease or something like that. Like you, nobody really wants to, to pray for humility, and yet it matters so much to God, we actually should pray for humility. Believing that humi- praying for humility is immediately going to result in you losing everything that you love is actually a total misunderstanding of how much God loves you. I don't know what God's going to bring into your life to teach you humility, but humility is so valuable in the kingdom of God, if God did call you to lose a lot in order to gain it, it would be so worth it for you. You may not think so, but other people think so. Other people think that if you would grow in humility, it would be great, and God agrees with all those other people. And so you should pray for it. You should pray for God to teach you where your blind spots are. Where do you think you're great that you're not? And so there's the areas where you can receive the grace and the mercy of God in your life. Another way to grow in humility is to focus your mind and your heart on how great God is in comparison to how great you are. Isaiah 6 is a great example of what it's like to be in the presence of God. 
and to be in his full presence. Revelation 1 is another place to, to read about what, it, what it's like to be in God's presence as John was in God's presence there. And we recognize that in the face of God, we are, we are nothing compared to him. And we need to learn who we really are in light of who God really is. And so who gets to experience fellowship with God in this second section? It's the humble person. It's the person who recognizes that in comparison to God, they really are no one. And yet, because they recognize that, they can be near to Jesus. They can be in the most prominent of places at the table. And that place is reserved for all of us who are humble and come to God by his grace. The third section is that Jesus includes the outsider. This is verses 12 through 14. So in this section, Jesus is teaching them about who's going to be invited to the, king, into the fellowship of the kingdom of God and the fellowship of the, in the feast at the end. But he's also giving us some instruction about how we should um, handle the invite list to our parties as well. So mealtime was extremely important in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And when you invited people over, it wasn't just to have a good time. Um, almost every time, uh, it was so that you could get something out of it. Now, it could be, you know, A, it could be that you just really love all the people there, and, and for you, it, you just gain so much personally by having these people around you. That's one way of doing it. But usually, B, the way parties were done, is because you really, at the end of the party, wanted some kickbacks, maybe some gifts, maybe you wanted them to invite you over, you wanted to secure a business deal, you wanted uh, the Pharisees to like you more, and so you get a more prominent place in the synagogue or whatever. There's usually some kind of an ulterior motive that's going on for why you invite people to your parties, and so you invite the people that you think will get you farther down the line socially. That's how most parties were done back in the day, and that's how most parties, a lot of parties are done today as well, maybe not as much, but a lot of parties are done, particularly you know, business-type engagements, or maybe even in your home as well. You give to get, you serve to be served, you invest to get a kickback. But Jesus says in verse 13, instead invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. He says invite people. If you want to be like God, invite people to your parties that you will get nothing back from. It is, it is purely to invest in them, to love them, to care for them. You know, honestly, growing up in my home, uh, we didn't do this very often. Occasionally, we might have had somebody in. Um, but, you know, Olivia's parents, uh, they don't know I'm about to say this, but they, they actually made a habit of this at holidays. Olivia's an only child, and uh, they didn't have many family living around them most of the time. And they would invite people in from all kinds of walks of life, uh, people that really were a bit strange sometimes, or uh, maybe they were missionaries back on furlough, and sometimes missionaries are strange that are back on furlough, but I wasn't talking about the same thing there. But uh, also, just people that, uh, people that were in need, widows, people that had just lost their husbands or, or wives, and, and just people that they just brought into their home. And, and this is something for Olivia that she just grew up seeing as being normal. So when we got married, that was just that was completely normal for her, and uh, it wasn't normal for me, but it's something that I got to learn from a few of us invite hurting strangers or people that feel alone over like this, but most of us don't. Now, some of us feel like we can't financially do that, and we would love to do that if we could. And that's one way it's great to be a part of a church, uh, because you don't have to do it all by yourself. 
Uh, we can pool our resources together. You can have parties with other people. Uh, but, but offering hospitality like this to other people is really part of what we read about in the kingdom of God. And some of you are in a life stage, uh, we were in that life stage for like a long time, where you got little kids, it's really hard to do it. It's hard to invite people over. Um, I would really encourage you um, to, on one hand, take account of your bandwidth and realize that maybe sometimes you can invite people over quite as often as you want. On the other hand, I would encourage you to invite people over anyway. Because all the other people in the church that also have little kids also feel the same way that you do about inviting people over. And so you should just invite people over anyway, but you have to get over this idea of like Pinterest perfection uh, that, that is what a party makes, you know. Actually, what a party makes is people and maybe some food and drink. Um, and even if you can't afford that, you can still have people over. You can have, you know, bring your own whatever And it's a great opportunity to have people over and to experience fellowship uh, in your life. But I would encourage you to lay aside this notion that the party needs to be amazing, where where the the to-do list is a mile long. It's so hard to overcome a list like that. I would really encourage you to minimize it and think about what can we do to have people over to show them the love of Christ um, that doesn't require a ton um, in order for us to do that. So Jesus blesses those. Uh, it could be the show hospitality, but also he includes the outsider, people that we normally wouldn't expect to be included. And the final section um, is Jesus blesses the unsatisfied. Jesus blesses the unsatisfied in verses 15 through 24. So in v- verse 15, somebody at the dinner party gets really excited and and shouts out, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast at the kingdom of God. And Jesus is kind of like, uh-oh. Uh, I, I don't know if this guy is going to be there, you know? I'm not sure if this guy and what he thinks the kingdom of God is like is what Jesus knows the kingdom of God is like. So Jesus tells a parable to make sure everybody understands what it means to be invited or to respond to the invitation of the kingdom of God. He takes this moment, here they are at a banquet that's thrown by this Pharisee, and Jesus is taking this moment at table fellowship to share how different the table fellowship will be in the kingdom of God than it is that particular evening. There's a bit of a contrast that's going on here. He shows who will get to eat with him on that final day, and he tells a parable to make his point. So verse 16, he says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, this, this person is preparing a great banquet. This is God, the Father. He's preparing a bounty of grace. It's more blessing than you can possibly imagine. And the heart of the Father is to dispense this blessing out on everyone. In verse 17, it says, At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. So, in this moment, He tells his servant, Jesus, go out into the world and tell the world of the gospel. That's why Jesus is there. Jesus proclaiming the gospel to the the world. He's going to do it through his death, and he's going to do it through his resurrection. And the the invitations are going out. And the, the broad, general proclamation of the gospel is given to the world. And this is where the parable in verse 18 gets very interesting. Jesus says the first group of people he extends invitations to aren't excited about the party, and they, they treat it as a nuisance, 
as a, as a terrible inconvenience to their plans. It's definitely a, a twist that we weren't expected. It's interesting. It's very convicting. And the excuses are not what you might anticipate. None of the excuses that people give are that they want to go do bad things. Not a single person says, I'm sorry, I just bought an axe and I want to go kill someone. Or, I'm sorry, I've been planning on cheating on my wife this weekend and so I can't come to your party. And nobody says, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm busy cheating on my taxes this weekend. No one says that. That might be what we expected. Each excuse is about something good in life. It's about business. It's about property. It's about marriage. It's about an area that God permits us and even encourages us to care about. But if we care about it too much, it will destroy us, and it will keep us from experiencing the greatest things in the world. You know, the idolatry of good things is what we see here. That's the problem. Idolatry is when you take something that's a good thing, and you make it an ultimate thing. And that's when it becomes a bad thing. A good thing that God gives us, if if God is ultimate, then it can remain a good thing. But God is the ultimate thing, and therefore it's in its proper place. But if you take the good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, it will destroy you. People in their obsession with good things in this parable have missed the greatest thing, which is the free offer of mercy from God to be with him in heaven. Now this passage honestly makes me think about Carrie. You know, some of my neighbors, some of who, even who attend church, they won't be left out of the kingdom of God because they're busy doing so many bad things, planning evil. It's because they were so busy and satisfied with the good things in life that when Jesus came calling, they felt no need for him. It didn't ma- Jesus didn't matter to them. A relationship with God seemed like a nuisance. Owning and maintaining property, getting kids to soccer tournaments, making money, getting the next promotion, having a nice home, managing their retirement funds. All these things have made them so busy that when Jesus' grace is mentioned, it seems like a nuisance, a bothersome thing to consider. Mercy from God is somewhere down the list below submitting the registration forms for baseball or for little Catherine's dance class or making sure we have enough money to go on vacation this summer. Grace from God really isn't valuable J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, thousands are continually doing what this parable describes. They are invited to come to Christ, but they will not come. It is not ignorance of religion that ruins most people's souls. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit, which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. So how does God respond to the excuse makers? Well, he becomes angry. You know, Jesus gets angry. He got angry in the temple. He gets angry here in the parable. He gets angry that people don't care about the banquet. They don't care about his death and resurrection. They don't care. And so he gets motivated to go out. He tells his servants to go out and invite those who will come, anyone who will come, who are not satisfied with their current life. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the mentally ill, those with special needs, the battered wife, the racially marginalized. Anyone, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your situation in life is, that realizes they need grace. Anyone. He wants anyone to come. 
The Jews treated Jesus as unimportant, and so God went out and invited the Gentiles. The rich were preoccupied with their many things, so God invited the poor. The healthy weren't interested in being healed, and so God invited the crippled. Those who could see couldn't see their need for grace, so God invited the blind. The educated suburbanites were too sure of their knowledge and too busy to fit God in their schedule, so God invited people who were less busy who had time for him. The problem with the parable isn't with the feast. It's not with the invitation. It's with the people. The people have gotten themselves satisfied by things that don't matter, and so they've missed out on the greatest blessing. Look at your own life, and if you've been blessed with some of these things, have you made these good things ultimate things, and so that has become a bad thing in your life, a, a rotten thing that is keeping you from this banquet today? Remember the big question, who gets to have fellowship with Jesus? If you, to have fellowship with God, the invitation is there, but to know you need to respond to it, you need to know your need for grace and mercy. And so the question is, are you satisfied with life? If you want to ask the question, will wealth, will relationships, will health, will travel, will those things really not satisfy me? I just want you to look to the end of those things. See through them and look to the end of those things. If, that, if you've been blessed by God in those ways, and you actually are beginning to think that those things could satisfy your soul, you need to look through them, look to the end. You can look throughout the Bible for so many people who have had more than you do, who have been rotten by those things. Those things have not satisfied them. You can look at Solomon, who had far more than any of us ever will. Probably all of Carrie's wealth combined and more. And he was rotten to the core. He lost, he lost his soul in the end because he did not worship the Lord and he had idols in his life. You know, I, was, I coach a, a brother in China who lives in Qingdao, China on the coast. He's a pastor. And he told me this remarkable story the other day of someone who came to know Christ in their congregation. And this person came to know Christ and they formerly were an idol, like a, a, an idol worshiper of physical idols. They were very wealthy. They lived right on the ocean, which is the cities right on the ocean in China. And they had hundreds of idols, thousands and thousands of U.S. dollars worth of physical idols that they had worshipped in their home. And they came to Christ, and she came after she became a Christian. She said, I, I need to get rid of my idols. And so he and the other pastor and an elder uh, got two cars, two large cars, and they spent all day putting the idols into their cars and driving across the street a little bit of a ways to the ocean and dumping the idols in the ocean. That's what they, that's what, I was like, what did you do last week? Well, tell, let me tell you this story. I'm like, wow, that is an, that's unbelievable. I mean, literally dumped all the idols in the ocean. So that's a great example of something that's obviously bad in your life. If, you know, some of our idols are good, and some of them are really obviously bad. Um, pornography is something that if, if it's part of your life, or gambling, or alcohol addiction, or something like that, that's obviously bad. Um, working 100 hours a week because you just can't possibly bear the thought of not being successful. But it's obviously bad. You need to get rid of that thing. You need to dump it in the ocean. It's a serious thing. When I was at that Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, it's a serious thing. If you have an addiction, something you feel like you just absolutely cannot live without, you need to get rid of it, and you need to come to me 
like this person did to her. Come to me. Let me help you with some other people figure out how to get a taxi for you and dump that in the ocean with you. Bad things just need to be disposed of. But it's a harder question, what do you do about the good things that have become ultimate things that is a bad thing? Because you can't just get rid of your business. I guess you could, but you need a job. You, you, you certainly shouldn't get rid of your marriage or your children or all your money. Okay, you need some of that. <laughs> you need to keep your family and you need to keep your money. So what do you do with a good thing that's become an ultimate thing that's therefore a bad thing? Well, first of all, you need to take a true spiritual inventory. You need to own up to, if Jesus came to you, came calling and said, I want you to come to me, I want something substantially to change in your life, where does the excuse making come in? Where are the excuses? What are the thing you might bring, what's the thing you might bring up first that's like, eh, I would, but, you know. Okay, it's, an, it's probably an idol. Like if God wants you, if he wants your heart, and he's after you, and you're ex- making excuses, it's probably an idol. And so you need to take a true inventory. What's keeping you from experiencing the grace of God? Second of all, you need to, to walk through true repentance. You need to admit honestly that whatever this thing is that's become an ultimate thing, is not going to satisfy your soul. And that you want to um, devalue it in your life. You want to place it underneath the lordship of God. Truly, you want to repent of that, that place that you've given to that thing in your life. And then you need to walk through true devotion, true inventory, true repentance, true devotion. What does it look like to put God again at the center of that thing? The center of your relationships, maybe your marriage, maybe your relationship with your children, maybe uh, your, relation, your work, your money. What does it look like to put God truly at the center of that so that God owns your family dynamic? This is not about you having the perfect marriage, making your husband happy, making your wife happy, making your kids uber successful in everything that they do, being an unbelievable star at work and having more money than you know what to do with. That, those things, you've got to put God at the center of that and let God be the one who's the Lord over those areas of your life that you have come to depend on in ways that are really unhealthy for your soul. And as you take that inventory more regularly, you will find that you are truly devoted to the Lord and that you are truly valuing the mercy of God in your life. For example, if you feel like you need more money than you do, and you're constantly thinking about money, and actually I know a lot of us are right now because of inflation and the cost of everything. It's easy for money right now to dominate our, our psyche and to think about how are we going to do this or that. And What we need to do is make sure that money is not occupying an inordinate place, and we need to make sure we're bringing God in and saying, God, you are the center of my life. All that I want to do, all that I want to afford, all that I want in life, you are the center of that. So teach me, Lord, what to do. And God will more and more occupy the seat of affections in your life. Do you feel like that you could honestly live without God? Do you feel like that you're doing well enough and that if you just took Jesus out of your life that you'd be, you'd be okay, it'd be harder, but you could make it? Well, that's a sign that if, if the invitation goes out, you're going to be one of these people that's like, I'm sorry, I've got all this stuff going on. But if you feel your need for God, if you feel a need for his mercy, I encourage you to take stock of that. You know, at the table here, as we draw to a close, at the table, you have 
people, most people, uh, who don't, didn't really come in that day when Jesus was at the banquet feeling their need for grace. They came in self-sufficient, feeling like they basically had it all together. But this was an opportunity for them to repent. Yet there were probably some at the table who from day one actually knew when Jesus showed up that they needed to know what Jesus was about. And they knew their need for his grace. Whether you came in this morning very aware of your need for mercy or you're just listening right now and you're just kind of becoming more aware for the first time in a long time, or maybe ever, that actually you need God's mercy and his grace and none of these things are going to satisfy you. The mercy of God is for you. The invitation goes out. The Father gives the invitation. The Son has sent the invitation out, and the invitation is for you. Will you respond to the call of the gospel? Will you respond not just by saying, yes, I believe in you, but will you dismantle the idols of your life so that only one is is preeminent, only one is ultimate, and that is God himself? Will you submit yourself to the Lord and find refuge in him? You know, we're going to be transitioning here to the table in just a minute, and um, it's going to be an awesome opportunity for us to to enjoy this meal. And so uh, just a, a word on that. Um, uh, I can't even remember. I haven't done this in a while. Do we, do we do a song before I do this bit? No, I'll go straight into it. All right, cool. Um, sorry, I've been out of here for three weeks, and I've been, I've been gone. Um, but, um, yeah, so this table is for, for anyone who knows their need for God's grace. Um, this table is for, it's for you. And so if you feel your need for God's grace, this, this is where you need to be. If you've ever confessed that you need God's grace and you're a, a member or part of any type of church body, then this is for you. Now, these elements, this juice, wine, bread, th- this is not, there's nothing about this that makes this moment magical for you. Like it's some sort of a spiritual experience that's just going to make your life better. What, what's going to make your life better is by taking Jesus, Jesus Christ And by combining this moment, as you come here physically and you take the elements, by combining this moment with faith, it's your faith in Christ and connecting your heart and your mind to what Christ has done that makes this moment unique, that Jesus has commanded us to participate in. Um, If you've never come to that place or you're in this place today where you're like, yeah, I'm just really not sure that this this is for me, um, I appreciate your honesty. I really do. I don't want you to feel any pressure uh, to come forward and take part in this. If you're like, you know, I really don't know if I believe in this, um, I would just encourage you to remain in your seat instead and to think about uh, God's grace. But if you are someone who confesses Christ, if you're even someone who's struggling greatly with sin, but you really want to see Christ glorified in that area of your life and you really want to follow him, I encourage you as well to come forward to this table is for you. So at Trinity Park, also, we're going to have a a song of preparation here in just a second. Um, We would encourage you to go back and to to get your children who are ages, um, who are not toddlers and who are not infants, so older than that, to come and have them experience this moment with you. Uh, We we don't encourage them to, we don't encourage them to take uh, the Lord's Supper with you, but just to observe it so that they can see this moment and see... um, you taking the Lord's Supper, and maybe ask questions about this moment with you. So I'd encourage you to go get them, bring them back, and make it a family moment. For those who um, have confessed Jesus Christ, this moment is for them. And if they haven't, if they're kids, then just go get them and bring them back with you.
Uh, so with that, we'll go through the song of preparation. Prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper, and then I'll be back up here in a minute. Thanks. <laughs>